Villas Grace Church. Building relationships that make followers of Jesus. Know, grow, go. To know him, to grow in him, to go with him. Thank you, Joe. As the deer panteth for the water, so my soul longeth after thee. One of my favorite of the songs from the 80s. Well, I'm uh, back in the saddle up here again. I don't know if I can ride well or not, but, uh, uh, and I like this little gizmo. I don't like holding the mic. I like my hands free. I, I, used, I always kid about Hallie. If you want her to stop talking, just hold her hands. But uh, I'm not quite that bad, but I, uh, I do like the freedom of expression, so hopefully uh, we'll do fine. One thing I didn't count on is I can't really see it's too well up here, but that's fine. Um, We've been in the middle of a sermon series on 1 John, the first epistle of John, and uh, talking about how uh, we can test our faith, test our assurance, and uh, today I've been asked to uh, speak on the, the uh, passage in 1 John chapter 4, verses 14 to 21, so I'm using a clicker, I guess, because this will work. It's not working. Oops, I got, it. I got the wrong one. Whoops. Now I got it twice. Yes, it does. Okay. I've entitled my sermon, God's Perfect Love Perfected in Us. Now, uh, Matt put these slides together for me, so you've got to envision that that heart is love, okay? Uh, God's perfect love perfected in us, John 4, 14 to 21. I'm going to read the passage first. Yeah, it does have a slide today, doesn't it? Okay. And you can look on in your Bibles or read along as we see it on the screen. The passage says this, And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe that the love of God, that the love that God has for us, God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this we know, hello, okay, by this we know, uh, <clears throat> love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, he is, so also are we in the world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this command we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. We know that God's intention is for each one of us to be more and more conformed to the image of his son, that progressively we obtain his character in our lives. And of course, nobody arrives at that perfectly on this side of heaven, but that doesn't mean we don't strive for that. We don't allow the spirit to work in our life and make us more and more like Jesus. And nowhere is Jesus' character more evident than in his love. He showed that to others. His only displeasure with, is with those hypocrites who, who pretended to be godly and were not and led others astray. That love of Christ and God is to be perfected in us as we live upon this earth. We are to know his love, not only know that we love him and we love one another, but we are to be confident in the love that he has for us on a day-to-day -day basis. 
So that is only possible and evident as we mature in Christ in our lives. So I want to look at the first point of our message. Let's see if I get that again. Okay, not going. Oops, now I've got two. Okay, I might let you do that, Max. <laughs> the first verse that we read, I believe, is the foundation of perfect love. And that is, we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Now, that thought might be taken to reflect what the Apostle John said earlier in the letter when he spoke of the fact that he was an eyewitness of the truth. And it says in 1 John verses one, chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Uh, John was there, he saw what happened. He was an eyewitness to that truth and so that's what he shared with those he came in contact with. The Apostle Peter said something similar in Second uh, Peter chapter one, and again, I'm not getting it. Matt, you want to do that for you? Okay, there we go. Oh, no. I, okay. All right, here we go. Okay, we'll get this. Yep. Um, Peter said this: For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His Majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, and we, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Of course, that's speaking of the Mount Transfiguration where Peter, James, and John were with Jesus when he appeared in a glorified type state. Now, these statements were written in the first century as an eyewitness to the events that were present. Um, Paul also writes in 1 Corinthians 15 that as concerning the resurrection, that Jesus appeared to over 500 people at one time, many of whom were still alive when he wrote that. And you could go and ask them that. Now here 2,000 years later almost, people doubt that. They question all those things. But they knew what they saw and felt and heard. And they were conveying that to others. But I would also suggest that um, in this passage, John is saying something more than just, I saw him, I'm giving you my testimony. But he's also saying, he's including his audience, his readers, and he's saying, we have understood his coming. That by their faith in him and their personal lives and experience, they understood that Christ was with them and it was a reliable thing. So it was not only a matter of the eyewitness testimony of the apostles, but also the personal experience and growth of those who know him and follow him. Now I'm gonna give you a little bit of rabbit shell. I'll tell you ahead of time, we'll make it as short as possible. When we talk about, you know, we say here we want to know Christ, we want to grow and we want to go, that means we want to share Christ. Some people don't like the idea of sharing their faith. They think, well, I don't know what to say, I don't know how to do it, I don't know much of the Bible. You know, I, I haven't taken an evangelism class or anything else. And we even had one lady that when she heard that, she thought that meant she had to go door to door, you know, knocking on doors like the Mormons or the 
Jehovah's Witnesses or something. Now, there was a time when I did that. There was a time when a lot of people did that. This day and age may not quite be so conducive to that. It's more annoying than profitable. But we're not expecting anyone to go door to door or that kind of thing. But to, give your, to witness for Christ, to give your testimony, is just simply to tell what you know. How did you come to know Christ? What does the scripture say? And if you don't memorize any other verse in the Bible, just memorize John 3.16. You know, everything is summed up in that. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. It's one of the most profound verses in all the Bible. So when you, uh, when you are asked to go to court, and again, I can't, you're just, you're just asked to tell the truth, to tell what you know. You don't give the testimony to somebody else. You just tell what you saw, what you heard, what you know to be true. And that's all you have to do. And you can share that with friends, neighbors, whoever. You don't have to take an evangelism explosion course or anything else. Just express your faith in sharing Christ, and that's important. And I've often said, some of you heard me say, some people say, well, I don't know, I don't, I'm not very deep, I'm not, I'm not such a, you know, I'm not a strong Christian, I'm not even that. I always say this, you are the best Christian that somebody knows. You're the best Christian somebody knows because you may be the only Christian somebody knows. So don't be afraid. Just don't put it around. How do you do it? Just start talking. Okay. All right. Now, there's a process to our, uh, perfect, our being perfected in love. And this process says whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we've come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Now, there is a key word in the uh, epistle of John, and in his writing the gospel, it is the word abide. It's the Greek word meno. Uh, we don't actually have the Greek font up there, but it's meno. Its base meaning is to remain. In fact, uh, through a system of languages, that's where we get our word remain. And it's often translated in the Bible as abide, stay, or live, or other sorts of things. Now, it is extremely important that one properly understands how John uses this word and how Jesus used the word as he records it in his gospel. You know, throughout much of what may be considered mainstream Christianity, it's pretty much a given uh, thing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who came to earth and died on the cross to pay for our sins, and we must believe and trust in him to get to heaven. But in far too many groups, there are those who believe that, well, I come to Christ by faith, but then I got to live a certain way, do a certain thing, perform certain religious rites. I got to walk the straight and narrow, and if I don't, I'll fall off and I'll lose my salvation. And so they are really effectively denying God's grace and making salvation into probation. It's not saved eternally, it's life until I sin again. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't know any Christian that never stops, ever stops his sinning. We are just supposed to yield to the Lord and diminish the sin nature as much as we can by the power of the Spirit. So these people, though, they interpret, they interpret the commands to abide in Christ 
to mean that one must secure his own place in salvation or to hang on to it. In other words, when I was, when my kids were little and I wanted to walk across the street with them, I didn't say, okay, child, hold on to my finger. We're going to cross the street, you know, because they might let go. What did I do? I grabbed their hand. And because at that point in time I was stronger than them, they couldn't get away. I wanted to make sure that nothing else would happen. If I relied upon their strength, there could be trouble. But as the scriptures say, Jesus says, I give them my Father's hand and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. That's the security we have in Christ. Now I want to look at one passage, and this is another kind of rabbit trail of sorts, but I think it's important. In John chapter 15, these are some of Jesus' last words to his disciples. And many of you will recognize it as a familiar imagery of the vine and the branches. Let you look at these verses with me and try to remember them all because we won't have a lot of time to discuss them. Jesus said this, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that he may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full." Now, those that believe that you can lose your salvation at some point in time naturally go to this passage and they say, see, if you don't bear fruit, you're going to be cut off and cast into hell. Although the passage doesn't say anything about hell, it just says about withered branches that are not good for much and withered away and thrown aside. We know, of course, that the scriptures clearly teach that eternal life is a gift of God. It is not by works lest any man would brag about it. So if it's a gift of God entirely by his, God's, by his grace, then it's not a matter of you losing a gift. A gift is something freely given. But it does speak about abiding in him. Now notice in that passage, Jesus speaking to his disciples uses words like, these are my branches. I think this thing has a mind of its own. We're already too far ahead. <laughs> um, <clears throat> these are branches of mine. And he also refers to the disciples as clean. Those are indications to me that he considers them already believers, saints, if you will, uh, saved. Okay? But then he proceeds to tell these saints, these believers, abide in me. So he must mean something other than hang on to your salvation. What he is talking about is maintaining a close relationship with him in order to grow and to prosper spiritually. The imagery is that of the branches to remain connected to the root 
in order to be fruitful. We get our strength and resource from the Lord himself. It isn't found in our own abilities, our own natural talents. It's found through the Lord working through us by the power of his Holy Spirit. So the Bible does not teach us that we need to hang on to our salvation, but rather he hangs on to us. Now some also in those passages, uh, they make conclusions like, He's cast into fire, and they say, well, that must be hell. Well, granted, fire is often used in the Bible to describe judgment, but not always judgment in hell. And certainly believers are going to be judged and disciplined during their life and the course of their life. When Jesus speaks of taking away the unfruitful branches, he may be speaking of the need to discipline a believer. Or he may even speak to the end that Some believers have gone too far and their own very life will be taken away if they're not fruitful, they're not doing them any good. I've often told, you know, I'm a youth worker and so forth over the years, and I often tell kids, you know, the Bible says you'll never cast you out, never lose you. God will never kick you out of his family, but he might say, come here. We need to talk. That might involve some chastening and scourging, as the writer of Hebrews says. And ultimately, it might mean our death if we are uh, sinning beyond control. In fact, John, later in, the, in this letter, speaks of the fact there is a sin unto death. I don't ask you to pray for that. In other words, some believers have gone too far. And God may very well say, well, you're not doing me any good down there anymore. Come on up. So it could be teaching that when it says he's taken off and cast away, that that's talking about discipline. But another position, some propose the fact that the the word for take up, or the word for uh, take away, can also be translated lift up. And there may be the imagery of the fact that some, some of us who are not doing what we're supposed to be doing, that God will lift us up out of the mud, lift up the branch, prop it up so that it can then be fruitful. So God may work on our life in that regard. But it certainly doesn't speak anything about uh, losing one's salvation. And I would caution any of you or any of us to, when we read Jesus' parables, not to try to overanalyze them. Some people start talking like every little thing. Uh, if it's not explained, if, if it's not explained in the passage what Jesus is meaning, don't try to add meaning to it that we don't know. That's just writing your own Bible and commentary. Now, I would go on to suggest that the idea of abiding in him is closely associated with how the scriptures use the concept of knowledge. Now we speak about knowing things, but the Bible, when it uses the term know, often is referring to a more, uh, a deeper relationship, a deeper meaning. For instance, in in Genesis chapter four, the Bible uses the term know. It says, Adam knew Eve, his wife and she conceived a son. And then later in the same chapter, it says that Cain knew his wife and she conceived a son. And then later Adam knew his wife again. Well, it's not talking about being reacquainted with his wife. It's obviously talking about a sexual relationship, an intimate, deeper relationship. And so it often uses that in that sense. Also in uh, Matthew chapter seven, uh, Jesus using the example of people who think they're in the right place, think that they're going to heaven because they've done a lot of religious things, even in his name, Uh, Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. 
Now, obviously, he's not saying, I didn't know who you were or I didn't know about you. God is God. He knows everything. But he didn't have a relationship with those people. They were just religious workers, good people. They weren't really a part of him. He never really had a connection to them. Now, when I first went to to Florida Bible College after graduating from high school, uh, I didn't know anything about my wife, Hallie. I mean, I never met her. And my first uh, exposure to her, so to speak, was a good friend of mine uh, told me some things about her, and that kind of intrigued me, so I had to look her up. And, of course, when I finally saw her, I said, well, she's kind of cute, and I got to get to know her a little bit better. But I was pretty bashful and shy at the time, and and so I just kind of, I, I met her, learned about her, uh, you know, knew her as a classmate, but that was about it. And finally, at the end of our freshman year, I got up the nerve to ask her out on a date, and I took her to our end-of-the-year banquet. And surprisingly, she said yes. So anyways, uh, I often say that I spent most, I was playing my trumpet at the time, so I I didn't get a whole lot of time with her because uh, I was in the orchestra thing and uh, she was by herself. But So anyhow, after that, um, I went home for the summer. I came back and, and uh, we started getting to know each other better and we went on a few dates and, and uh, got to know each other a little bit more. You know, became more acquainted with each other. But we dated on and off for those next two years and mostly off, but... <laughs> But uh, a lot of people thought we were a match set. They thought we belonged together, and they kind of paired us up. They thought we should be together. And I, and I don't know. Uh, some people think they receive a word of prophecy. Well, maybe some of them were right. But, <clears throat> but, uh, but during the time I, you know, when we weren't dating, we, we kind of knew which other was going on. We were both in student government and different things. And, and so uh, I was pretty much sold on her. But, but she was a little skittish about me, so, and she came back from her round-the-world trip at the end of uh, the summer, um, just before our senior year, she kind of broke up with me, and, and I, we didn't date at all during our senior year. And I thought, well, maybe this isn't God's plan for me or for her. Um, so, um, you know, I tried dating a few other girls, just one-offs kind of thing. And, uh, but at the end of the year, I was about to go to Chicago to help a friend with his church, after graduation, I said, well, I'm going to take her out just one last time to say goodbye. So we went out, and, uh, and uh, that date went pretty well. So we planned another date a little while later. And after that date, we decided to get engaged. To get, we, we made the decision and the commitment to get married. And marriage is a commitment, you know. Uh, you can't just go into it thinking, well, I hope it works out, because it must work be something that believers take seriously and work out. So we got married, and of course, on our wedding, wedding night, I knew her, and she knew me in a more intimate way for the first time. But that's only the beginning. Through the years, you get to know somebody, you live with them, you get to know all about them. I know the things that, that she likes, I know the things she dislikes. I know her ups and downs. Uh, she knows mine. And a lot of times my downs are the reason why she's down. Uh, 
But you grow in that knowledge of each other. It deepens over time. I learn to trust her in every situation. Even when sometimes she does something I don't like or disappoints me, I know that she's a person who's not out to do me harm, uh, not out to do me wrong. Uh, and you learn to develop a relationship that has meaning. Now, there's always more to learn. Uh, and we've, since we've lived our lives together for the last 45 plus years, we have come to appreciate each other, to become good friends, to be, become good workers in the Lord. And I'm not saying our marriage is perfect. No marriage is perfect. I always, I always is a question to people that say, well, we've been married for 50 years and we've never had an argument. Oh, really? Okay. Uh, I knew one fellow that says, we got married and we've only had one fight. It started the day we were married and never ended. <laughs> But no marriage is perfect, but I, I honestly think that ours is, is strong, and uh, we've been able to think and build a solid relationship and overcome difficult times. And I sense her love for me more and more all the time, and I appreciate that. Um, and that's how a relationship with the Lord is supposed to be. It's supposed to be a growing relationship, deeper and deeper, that we have uh, a deeper knowledge of him. You know, we, we say here at Villa's Grace that we want to know, know and grow and go. And normally when you say something about no, does, you know, we use the term in reference to initial salvation. We say, well, he knows the Lord or she doesn't know the Lord, meaning they're not saved. But having salvation is one thing, but building on that is building a deeper knowledge. It actually brings us into the grow part where we grow and and we're prospering as the, the branches of the vine. And, and so we have that kind of relationship. And when you build that kind of relationship, you learn to trust the Lord more and more. I sometimes think it's easier for people to trust Christ for salvation than it is for day-to-day -day stuff. Because a lot of times you can say, well, well if, you know, if there's a heaven and hell and I believe in Jesus, I'm going to heaven. But, but you know, they don't really know if it's happening. You know, if, if they die and there's no heaven or hell, then there's no, no sweat. But, uh, but trusting the Lord through the day-to-day -day process. And so I want to finish with three points on the results of perfected love. The first one is confidence. It says, by this is love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in the world. Now again, people often misunderstand the, the concept of judgment in the Bible. You know, they get this Hollywood thing where you come to heaven and you're standing before God and he's trying to figure out whether you're good enough to go to heaven or not and whether he lets you in. And so again, they base it back on my works or your works. The Bible doesn't teach that. It does teach judgment in two different ways. It first of all talks about the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat as some refer to it. That's the Greek word which is for believers. Paul writes, for we all must appear for the judgment seat of Christ. He's talking not to the world, he's talking to the believers. And as he says there and in 1 Corinthians 3, it's a judgment for determining how we spent our life, used our life for the Lord, uh, for rewards or loss of rewards, for crowns or whatever. 
So the fact that you're there in front of the judgment seat of Christ is a good thing. You're already there. And now you have to stand before the Lord and give an accounting for how you've used your time. And naturally, there'll be some regrets, some things we should have done better or things we shouldn't have done. But we're there. But if our love is perfected in us, we have greater confidence that, yes, I've used my time well. May not have been perfect in it, but you'll have more confidence in your presence before the Lord. You won't bring him shame or you won't feel ashamed in his presence. And also, in addition to our confidence before the Lord, is a certain amount of fearlessness. The scriptures there say there's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for love has to do with punishment. Whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. The Bible often expresses the idea that we need to fear God. And yet here it says perfect love casts out fear. So how do you reconcile those two contrasting statements? Well, everybody needs, both believers and unbelievers need to understand that they are before a holy and righteous God. And we need to fear God in that, not just mere respect, but that high reverence. We ought to fear God as God. He is, after all, holy, righteous, and we're not. As Isaiah in his vision said, he was kind of blown away. I'm undone. But as one grows in our relationship with a loving father, we don't have the kind of fear that an abused child would or, a, or a, an abused puppy because we know his love for us. Even when things seem rough, even when things don't seem right, we have more confidence that he's looking out for us, that he's looking for our best interest and he will get us through those problems. I don't want to sound like I have it all together, but I have learned to trust God for more than my salvation and to know that he'll always be there for me. I don't fear any evil from him. I will admit that I sometimes fear my own failures, that I'm not doing enough. I don't want to bring shame to his name. I don't want to do anything that would cause people to be repelled by the gospel. But I know his goodness, and no matter what may occur, I know his good intentions for me. That is, of course, in the knowledge that my own sins may bring consequences and he may have to take me to the woodshed on certain occasions. But I know that's still for my best interest. And it says, we love because he first loved us. Now, when I talk about love, sometimes I talk about conditional love, that some people, they say, I love you if you do this or I love you because. And they only love if somebody loves them back. Now, that's not what this verse is saying. It's basically saying that we know how to love because he first loved us. He know, we know what ultimate love is. That is, he gave his own son for all of us who are unworthy. He didn't just love us because we were lovable, or he didn't love us only when we're good. I, I like the line, I can't even remember what song it is from Michael Card's, one of Michael Card's songs where he says, he can't love us more and he won't love us less. So we know God's ultimate love, and we know that we can have 
less fear in life knowing he is there. He's the great shepherd taking care of us. The last point is that because we are having, have love being perfected in us, we have love for, of others. And of course, John returns this many, many times in this whole letter, that we need to love one another, especially in the, in the uh, family of faith. It says this, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, Whoever loves God must also love his brother. You know, I've often said, if you want to express love to me, love my kids. Love my kids. That's not always easy because they're not perfect kids. They weren't when they were little. They're still not. God says, you want to show love to me? Love my children. That's difficult sometimes, because sometimes your brothers and sisters in Christ will let you down. Sometimes they'll even stab you in the back. Sometimes they're doing some not so lovable stuff, but yet, nevertheless, we need to love. And that is the commandment. We are a part of a family of God, as we say, and we sing that song sometimes, the Gaither thing, I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. And we know in our personal experience there's no greater hurt in life than that which a family member can inflict. It's true in your own families, it's true in the family of God. But we need to continue to love. And if you truly love somebody, you're gonna try to help them, not ignore them, not shun them. You're going to try to deal with it in love. So when I talk about, when Paul writes, or I mean when John writes about the biting in Christ, he's talking about an ongoing relationship. Not hanging on to your salvation, but growing, staying connected, staying where the source of our strength is so that we can be fruitful and prosper in him. He is the vine, we are the branches. We can do nothing apart from him. And so think about that when you see John write about abiding, and he does that throughout the whole letter. The evidence of our having been perfected, of his love being perfected in us, is that we have confidence before him. We don't have to cower in the corner, we don't have a the fear that others may have, and that we express that in our love for one another. Let's pray, and I'm going to ask uh, Mike to come up and close. Mike is there, and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us your Son. That is the gift, and the manifestation of him is, brings us salvation. The gift of eternal life is found in the gift of your Son. May we develop and grow in a deeper relationship with one another and with you so that we can see that, that love perfected in us, that we indeed will be more in this world like you are, and that people will understand and, and recognize that fact. Help us to draw our strength from you 
from the Holy Spirit working within us. Never let us do anything in our own will or might, but in the power of the Holy Spirit working through us. We thank you again, Lord, for this time together as we recognize our place in your family and our place in this world. Thank you for Jesus, Lord. We pray in his name. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. For more information, look us up on our website, www.villasgrace.com or drop us a line via email, connect at villasgrace.com.